Good morning, LSQ fam. Blessed Resurrection Sunday. Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. And all of God's people said, Amen. Stella, I need to have whatever you're having this morning. That's really good. Good morning and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square on this Easter Sunday. We are really glad that you're here. This is a church for the convinced and the unconvinced. This is why we do Q&R after every service. There is a phone number in your bulletin to ask questions and to dialogue afterwards. It's why we print in the bulletin along the, with the liturgy what's happening because we don't want anybody to be left behind. We, whether you're the convinced or the unconvinced or somewhere in between, this is supposed to be a place where you can join us to joyfully reflect God's love together. In the last Harry Potter book, <laughs> you like how that starts, right? In the last Harry Potter book, I'm, re I, I'm always rereading Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings, Narnia, and right now I'm in, Nar in uh, Harry Potter. In the very last book, Harry visits his parents' grave. And when he gets there, the snow is falling, the moonlight is gleaming off of the headstones of his dead parents that gave their lives for him. And he is able to read the headstones, and they, they say this. They say, here lies James and Lily Potter. And then under that, there's an epitaph that says this. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And that's a nice phrase, not original J.K. Rowling. <laughs> Actually, that phrase was said by Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, just after the passage that was printed in your bulletin. Because... 1 Corinthians 15 is the largest treatment that Paul gives to the resurrection, which is at the center of Easter. Some of you might not believe in the resurrection. Some of you might not know what you believe about the resurrection. Some of you know, or maybe you've grown up and you believe it's important, but you, 
not quite sure why. No matter who you are, I think I can say this. Everybody in this room has or will have a tragic event in your life that will set you and bring to you a worse life. Everybody in this, in this room at some point has had things happen to them that have made their lives worse. Uh, the death of a brother, of, of a daughter, a, a job that sent you south, relationships. Various events ha- can do that to you. But if that's possible, is it also possible there might be an event out there that is so positive, that is, is, is so amazing that it can actually bring good into your life despite the hurts and the pains that are with you right now. For Paul, he would say, that's Easter, that's the resurrection, it's that event. And so what I want to do this morning is I would like for us just for a little bit to explore the possibility that Easter is not just about springtime. It's not just about a happy story or, or fantasy land that if Easter is true, what would that resurrection power look like in our lives? And I think I'd like to do it with this text. This text is just look at two things today. In this text, let's see how real resurrection roots us in an infinite foundation from the future, as well as a strong steadiness in the present. Two things, an infinite infallible foundation from the future, as well as a steadiness in the present. So first, the resurrection gives us infinite, infallible foundation from the future. Look at our, at, at our passage here. Paul is so logical here. It's very sound. And he gives a ton of if-then statements. But I want to look at three, starting in verse 16. He says, if dead people stay dead, then, here's the logic, then Christ is still dead. And then look at verse 17. If Christ is still dead... Well, then your faith is futile. And then he goes on, because if your faith is futile, if it's fake, well, then you're still dead in your sins. And if you're still dead in your sins, then you are to be pitied. I mean, that is a great, logical, perfect progression. And if you, if you want to do sort of a numbers game here, if you look up the word if here, the if happens seven times because Paul is trying to sear into our brains that if this is not true, if the resurrection didn't really happen bodily, physically, actually, historically, then there's no power. If it's just symbolic, if it's just fantasy, it does, it's not really real. 9-11 happened on September 11th, 2001. Nobody walks around and says, do you believe in 9-11? And the reason why is because all you have to do is go downtown, which is that way, all you have to do is go downtown, and you can see two giant holes in the ground. All you have to do is talk to the eyewitnesses, talk to the people who were there, and they will tell you it's truth. And because of the truthfulness and historicity of it, the power of the stories, the power of everything else around it is real. Paul's saying the same thing about the resurrection. He's saying the resurrection only has power if it actually happened. Go to verse 20, the very at the end. The key word is but. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And he uses this image, first fruits, this is an Old Testament image, to try to make his point in two different ways here. I, mean, I want to go through them quickly. For, uh, about first fruits. 
the first way first fruits is operating here is it's, it's showing us how the promise can actually be made visible. The first fruits wa- is a, a biblical concept of promises are made. God makes promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Uh, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, and I'm going to give you land, right? And then when the, the land produces fruit, the first tomato, the, the first harvest, they put that first fruit on display as a way of saying, hey, remember all those promises, all those things in the past that were said to us, this is proof positive that it actually worked, that, that those promises were made sure. In the same way, the resurrection shows up, and when it does, what God is saying is, hey, all those promises that I'll be with you and you'll be with me, that is now visible, that is now true, that is now happening. If you were, um, let's just imagine you were put in prison 10 years ago because of a crime you committed, and and the sentencing was 10 years, and you serve your time, how do you know that actually that you have paid your debt? The way you know is that you were released from prison, and you're able to walk free. It's proof. In verse 17, when it says real resurrection. If it didn't actually happen, your sins are not actually paid for. Paul is saying you're still imprisoned. He's saying it's, it, it won't actually work. There's no proof there anymore. Uh, in, uh, my kids and I, we've been watching Stranger Things all four seasons, and we just finished season four. It's a show on Netflix. In season four, the antagonist, the, the evil person, is a guy named Vecna, and what he does is he, he's able to get into your brain, and he's able to see what you've actually done. He's able to see what you've, uh, what you've actually committed. And this monster takes your, your shame and your guilt and he weaponizes it against you to capture you. But I was, I've been thinking about it this week. You don't need a monster to do that. Your own brain, bring the shame that you've done, the guilt that, that you feel, it, that wasn't it. <laughs> Inside your own heart, what happens is you know you've done things. You know you've thought things. You know that you, you've said things, that you've, uh, the way you've acted towards other people, you know those things in your own heart. The, the, the lust, the greed, the anger, the rage, which you could have done more, which you could have done less. You could have worked harder. You could have cared more. You see, those things are inside of us, and they speak against us. It's evidence that we've done things, that we've failed as a parent, that we've failed as a friend, that we've failed uh, in our job. We've failed in these various ways and, and, and whatnot. And I guarantee you, no fake sort of pie in the sky, no happily ever after story is going to take that away. It's not going to make you feel better. Not for real. And that's what Paul's trying to get at. That these things don't just get fixed magically. Go to Paul's own life. Paul himself killed people. He saw, we have evidence that he watched Stephen be stoned. How do you come back from that? There's no amount of, of, uh, sort of self-esteem or self-help book or breathing exercises, none of that. Those things are, can be helpful, but they don't fix those things inside of you. And so what Paul is trying to say is he's trying to say there's an infinite, infallible foundation, but it's from the, the future, and you can have that because the resurrection is proof that the promises in the past are made sure. And if you live in light of that, that you are covered, that God can still love you 
despite all the hurt, all, despite what your heart even tells you about yourself, despite what other might tell you about yourself, if you can daily live in that, if you can hourly live in that, to the degree that you can do that, to that degree that you can actually have freedom from the shame of your past and a foundation for the future. All right, so at one level, first fruits points back to the past, but I also believe it points to the future. How? Because a fruit, the first fruits, imagine that you have this like fruit basket from the very beginning of the harvest. The benefit of that is, as you see it, it's a visible representation that there's more to come, right? It's by definition, it's the first fruits. You know there's a whole field of more stuff that's to come. So first fruits is, is like the resurrection is first fruits means there is more, this is healing, but there is more healing to come. There, there is new life and, and life out of death, but there is more life out of death possible. It's like working salt into the wounds of your life. I, uh, salt is used in ancient times as a preservative. You worked it into the meat. Sometimes it was pounded into the meat to preserve it and keep it from falling apart. The resurrection worked into your tears, worked into your heart, worked into your life, pounded into it sometimes, stays you, keeps you, allows you from not falling apart. This past week's been, been really, really hard for me. I went down to Nashville to be with my friend who lost his daughter in the Nashville shootings. I was with him earlier this past week. My dad's in the hospital right now getting treatment. Um, it's, always very, it's always very dicey. I lost my cousin a couple years ago. She was 36. She had two kids, and she died suddenly. I was never able to say how much she meant to me. I was never able to say goodbye. There is a lot of hardship out there. And what do we do with it? When I was in Nashville, I was sitting around a, a fire outside with, with my friend who lost his daughter, and he said something profound. He said, um, he said, you know, Mike, I, I, I've always believed, I believe, you know, I'm a pastor too. I, I, I believe in providence. I believe in the resurrection. But I gotta tell you something. Since my daughter's died, I have to believe it more. I need to believe it more. And it struck me when he said that. that I, being a pastor in New York City, I hear people all the time say, life is just random and this is the way it is. Or they'll blame God. God, why would he let evil happen in my life? And I realized something. That w statements like that are easier to say when you're not really suffering. That when you've just lost your daughter, when things are at your lowest that's actually the space where the resurrection becomes more tangible and more real and more applicable. And I was seeing that in my friend's face. Because the first fruits of the resurrection became tangible to him. And it's only that knowing that I'm going to see my cousin again, that Chad's going to see his daughter again, that we will see each other again, that death doesn't have its last say. Only by knowing that can you be able to have that firm foundation to move out every single day with the hurts and the cares, the ups and the downs. Because if Jesus rose again, then she will rise again. Then he will rise again. Then you will rise again. Because the resurrection means bodied, fixed, renewed futures. But friends, don't just believe this in your head. You have to believe it down in your heart, slammed into your tears. And if you do, that's when it brings resurrection and so before we move on, let me ask you this. Are you linked to the future in this way? Do you let the future reside in your hearts in the present tense now? 
Does it color your feelings and your wheelings and your dealings and all of life? Does it do that? Because if you did, it would bring new life. That God is orchestrating all things to bring you closer to him. Do you rest in that knowledge? Does that grace impact you? The resurrection fixes the present by infusing, by infusing the future now. All right, number one. Last point now. It's a foundation for the, from the future, but secondly, lastly, it can actually be a strong steadiness in the present. What I mean by steadiness? Steadiness, by definition, is balance. Uh, just for fun, I tried to stand on one foot for as long as I could, and I have really bad ankles or core or whatever you call it, but I couldn't do it very long because after a little while— you get tired, but you have more steadiness. Two legs, thankfully, bring more steadiness, more measuredness. I believe we live in a town, New Yorkers, where we like to think we're steady, but we're not. We like to think that we are able to, to, to um, be measured, but our attitudes tend to, we tend to err in one of two ways. We either, in this room, you either tend to be more optimistic than reality, or you tend to be more pessimistic than reality. And both types of people are in this room in, in New York. I can walk down street, the street, maybe you've done this too, you're walking along, you might smile, you might wave at somebody. I've had people look back at me and say, eat trash and die. And uh, more colorfully than that. But I'm like, you're a little pessimistic today. Others of you are optimistic. You know why? Because you you're always see the sunny side of things, even if there's not a sunny side. And you tend to, temperamentally, you tend to err on one side or the other. But that's a problem because it doesn't, that's not, does not bring steadiness. That in every situation, that's not how you're supposed to act. The resurrection, though, brings steadiness because on the one hand, it, it's optimistic. It's more optimistic than possible because it's not just bodily and physical here. It's throughout all time. It's resurrection, new heavens and new earth. That there is possible to have goodness and healing now, and yet, on the other hand, the effects of the resurrection with Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago hasn't fully moved itself out today. It's not fully here right now. So God's kingdom then is, in some sense, it's here, it's present, and yet it's not here. And so if I can summarize a huge theological term that, uh, that is only, I believe, unique to Christianity, it's something called the already but not yet. It's already here, but it's not quite here. And it brings amazing balance in all aspects of lives. Let me, let me kind of just give you a couple examples. Personal change. In New York City, I, I've had a lot of folks, uh, you know, say, ah, you can't change. But a lot of people like, go, no, 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 we can change everything, every aspect of our life, everything about it. Christianity walks in here and says, if you're too already— then you're going to get super disappointed. If you already believe that everybody can change at all times, then you're going to get too disappointed when you don't see that change in your own heart or in other people's lives. But if you're too not yet, you're going to get overly pessimistic that there's no, po there's no possibility of change. But fused together, already but not yet, means that change can happen, but we should expect it to be slow and uneven and hard and two steps forward and one step back for your own personal life. Or do it the other way. Let's zoom out for a second. Let's look at society, societal change. If you believe in the already but not yet, already resurrection power means that God has not given up this earth. That this is not about disembodied lives with a bunch of, uh, you know, outside in, in heaven on clouds and stuff like that. The future revelation says 
this world matters, and it's going to be remade and renewed. That gives you tons of optimism. At the same time, the not yet is that things are still broken, and that's not going to fully happen until the end. And that's, that's pessimism. And therefore, we should expect societal evils and oppressions to still be around. That's the not yet. But we still have hope because of the resurrection to try and to change. This is what's beautiful. It drives me nuts when I see Christians throw themselves into one particular political ideology as if that utopian view is going to actually work. The already but not yet shows us that every possible view out there tends to be overly optimistic in one area and also overly pessimistic in another. And yet the Bible perfectly keeps us balanced so we don't have to actually throw ourselves into any one particular thing. And yet it doesn't keep us on the sidelines and say, I'm just going to wait. No, it actually instead allows us to try and to care. You can have both aspects. And that helps us to be steady. So friends, don't, don't you dare, don't you ever, don't you dare over-realize the resurrection, right? Because in some ways he hasn't healed everything. He hasn't healed everything. At the same time, don't under-realize it. It is coming. It is here. It is present. You can have it in your life. The gospel account shows Jesus raised from the dead. But isn't it interesting that his marks, that the, the, the wounds are still there in his hands and his feet. And there's lots of ink has been spilled about this, but if I can sum up why, it's because the resurrection, the newness of life, never fully wipes away the effects of the brokenness of death that you and I have. And what, what, what I mean by that? God is able to do amazing things. So the worst, the worst day in history was the cross. And yet God can make one, the wonders of the world, can make the world more beautiful through that brokenness. What's great about that is the beauty for you today is this. The hurts that you're gone through, that, that you're going through, the, thir- the hurts that have happened and will happen to you, because of the way this works, it means there's great hope for us because if through the sorrow of the cross there's more joy that can happen than through the hurts of your life and the brokenness and the, the stains that can never be quite wiped away, somehow more joy and more love and more beauty can come out of that because of it. It's amazing that there is actually a deeper beauty that can be found through the brokenness. That's why you can trace rainbows through rain. It's why you can sit back and reflect almost always in the past and say, I don't know why this happened. I don't know how it happened, but somehow I can, I can start seeing little breadcrumbs of what might be possible through this. Uh, there, I, I, my, one of my kids broke their bones um, my, out of my fault because I let my, my youngest kid fell off the um, couch when she was a baby. And I was talking to the doctor, and the doctor said, I, I was like, oh, is this going like, to ruin her forever? Um, typical uh, father after knowing that it was my fault. And the doctor said this. The doctor said, actually, in, in, in little kids like this, after a bone breaks, as it reheals, it actually heals stronger than it was before. I thought that was a beautiful de- depiction of how actually sorrow and brokenness and hurt can actually uh, move in our lives. That all the hurt you've experienced will actually make the eventual glory and joy in the morning that much sweeter. Um, Sam in The Lord of the Rings, at the very end, there's this beautiful end where uh, it, with glee, he says, is everything sad going to become untrue? My dad used to actually quote that phrase when he would preach, and, I, and everybody would go, mmm, that sounds so good. Is everything sad going to come untrue? I've always had a hard time with that because, and and this week is probably more present than I've ever felt before. Sadness never fully does become untrue, does it? And what's cool about the Christian, 
life is that resurrection means sadness never becomes quite untrue, but it does get it does get transformed, and it does get used. Because the hurts never fully go away, but, and again, this is because I can't stop thinking about those Nashville shootings from two weeks ago. Like, I keep asking, what good can come from that? What good can really come from my friend's daughter is not going to wake up tomorrow? Right? She's, she's not going to wake up. She's not going to come home. And I always, I kind of, I've been asking myself and other people, what are you going to say to him to, to comfort him? Are you going to say, well, you know what, that's just life. Life is random and then you die. Is that going to help him? Are you going to say, you know what, you only live once? Are you going to say, you know what, no, no, it's karma. You know, bad things happen to bad people, good things happen to good people. No, do not do that either. Are you going to say, oh, it's okay, we're all going to be reincarnated in some way at some point. Or no, evil is just really, uh, this isn't really evil. One day we'll realize we're all part of the one, uh, you know, the one thing. None of that is going to comfort. What does this? Jesus Christ went to a little girl and he took her by the hand. She was dead and said, wake up, little girl. Time to rise. What will actually help, Chad's only hope and our only hope is that we will meet again, that death doesn't have the last say, that he will see her again and we will see her again and the shame that's in your heart doesn't win and the guilt that's in your life doesn't win and the, you're not the definition of your worst selves. You're not the definition of, of your worst mistakes. And therefore, here's the truth. The world's going to tell you, live your best life now. Guess what? That's, you're not, that's not true. The best is yet to come. But it only, only through the resurrection. And here's the proof. And I, I love this story. Dr. Jonathan Evans, when he was doing his mother's funeral, he was able to do it so differently than, than most funerals. He said this, he said, when a Christian is hurting, when you pray for a Christian, there's always only one, there's always one or two possibilities to the answer to that prayer. Either she was going to be healed, or she was going to be healed. When I prayed for, he said, when I prayed for my mother to live, she, he said, there's only two answers. Either she was going to live, or she was going to live. Either she was going to be taking care of her, she was going to be with her family, or she was going to be with her family. Why? Because the resurrection means that there's only one possible way for your life to end, and it's going to be with him. The Christian faith is the only one that I know of that allows us to say this, I don't know why bad things are happening to your life, but I know that it can't be that he doesn't love you. And the proof of that is the resurrection, that if he can take Jesus, his life and death, and all the evil and brokenness that happened to him, and turn it for good, then he can take the evil and brokenness in your life, your life and death, and turn it for good as well. That's what the resurrection is saying. That that means one day there will really be no more sadness. The sadness that it has been will be transformed and remade and renewed. And there will be no more death and what was lost will be found, and every hurt will be healed, and everything disfigured will be put back together. There will be no more t- cancer or tumors or shame or starvation or loneliness because the resurrection is the only one that I know of that takes, you, takes your pain seriously. When you say, hey, this is the way it is, you know, life stinks and then you die, that does not take your life seriously. This does. It says it's real. It doesn't, it's not 
uh, just in your head and doesn't dismiss it but redeems it. And that gives you and me an infallible hope for the future, but a rock solid steadiness to live now, the already but not yet. Easter, friends, is Jesus putting himself in the grave so that you and I come out of it. And so before we move out, I want to ask you a question. Do you live this? If you're a Christian here, this has been a resource that's been available, available to you every single day of your life. Do you access it? Does it impact you? Or if you find yourself beholden to worries and shame and loneliness, is it possible that the reason why you lack joy is because you haven't actually pressed the resurrection deep down inside your heart? Is it possible? That you have to move it from the, the belief, the intellect, down into your life, into a, where it becomes a security and a truth. You have to move this from belief into confidence. If you're not a Christian here today, or you're not sure what you believe, we said at the very beginning, it's a fact that if it did happen, I was sitting with a friend the other day who, not a Christian, and he said, yeah, I know, if this is true, it changes everything. So for, whether you're a Christian or not, let me show you how. Paul in Ephesians 5 verse 19 says, here's how you know this is real to you. Is that you it says that you sing, song, sing, you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to the Lord. And do you do that? Because songs take thought, take ideas, and turn them into beauty. That's what we've been doing this morning. True story. This is, and this is also true. I love telling the story. Years ago, I was at the, we were at the beach with my family. We went to a, a church uh, that we didn't really know that well, and they were singing songs. You come to a new church, a lot of times they sing songs that you're not quite familiar with. Some of you are doing that <laughs> this morning. And when, this is how you do it. You, you, the songs are, uh, 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 yeah, yeah. you don't want to sing too loud. Why? Because you don't want to look like a fool. Because the songs are unf unfamiliar, you don't want to make a mistake. And so it doesn't really move you. But then there was a song that I really loved that I was good. And I was like, oh, I know this song. And so I started singing it nice and loud. I was like, here, here I go. And my dad leaned over to me, and he was like this. He said, are you serious? Are you, are, you, are you really are you trying? And I said, yeah, I love this song. He goes, okay, well, just so you know, whenever you're up front, like on stage like now, um, make sure your mic is off because you don't sound very good. <laughs> and I was, I was he, first of all, he was right. He was not wrong about that. <laughs> but the, here's what's so beautiful and wonderful about it. It doesn't matter that at the end of the day, the truth is that when you sing the beauty of God and it slammed down into the center of your heart, it doesn't matter how you sing you sound, the beauty comes out, the love comes out, it becomes real, becomes, it moves you and others, and becomes a life-transforming power, not just in your life, but out in that world. There's a reason why Christians went out and started hospitals, and cared about justice in the poor, and the marginalized. It wasn't just because that they had everlasting life in the future. It was because it resided in their hearts today, and it motivates us and moves us beyond our navel-gazing and into the world. And that's what's possible and real and probable, fathers, uh, fa uh, because of the Father's love for us, that you can have this joy despite the hurts. And guess what? What's crazy, and I don't—this is so amazing. The sorrows and the hurts can lead to more joy, particularly through song, particularly through the beauty of it. And the resurrection is saying to us and to you, 
and me that your sorrows, when they become joy, it fuels more, fuels more joy. And that's what Jesus' hands and feet are saying today. That's what the resurrection is saying. That's what Easter is saying. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray the words of the song, right? Hasten thee from grace to glory, armed by faith, winged by prayer. Heaven's eternal day before thee, God's own hand shall guide us there. I pray songs like that will move into our hearts. Everybody has different types of songs that move us. But I pray that uh, the songs will show that belief is not just an intellectual exercise. It's, there's a trust. Father, I pray that everybody in this room will go through the evidence for the resurrection. We'll walk through the, the improbability of, of who said it and who wrote about it and how soon and what the eyewitnesses said, Father. I also pray that we would look at the evidence of our own hearts, that our own hearts are speaking against us in there, but there is one who's come to save and to be the proof that we're not stuck in our sins anymore. Father, I pray that this wouldn't be something that we just have on Easter, that we just fill the pews to hear it once every year. I pray this would be something that moves into the bowels of our hearts, and then we would say, you know what? We should, we should come more regularly to to be moved by this, to remind ourselves, not because I have to, but because I want to. I pray for every single one of us that that would be in us now and always. We pray these things. Amen.